0: Welcome to Smart Talk, I'm Scott Lamar. Have you watched the new PBS series, Mercy Street, yet? The series is set in a Civil War hospital in 1862. As you may have heard from the show's executive producer on Smart Talk last month, Mercy Street has been meticulously researched for accuracy, including the medical practices of the 1860s. We've come a long way in medicine in the last 100, 150 years. If you need convincing, visit the Edward Hand Medical Heritage Museum in Lancaster. The museum has over 11,000 items in its collection. On today's program, we'll discuss the museum and medical history. Joining us on the program today is Dr. Nikitas Zervanos, president of the Edward Hand Medical Heritage Foundation. Dr. Zervanos, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Scott. Also joining us is Donna Mann, the curator at the Edward Hand Medical Heritage Museum. Ms. Mann, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Good morning. It's good to be here.
0: This is the kind of thing we know that uh, WITF listeners, Smart Talk listeners in particular, are very interested in. The kind of history that you don't see in textbooks all the time, don't hear about. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Maybe you have a story to tell about something you've heard out of your family's past of how an illness was treated. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, I'm going to start with something. I'm not going to ask you to diagnose me right now. (laughs) Say I had a common cold, sniffles, coughing, not feeling very well. But the year was 1915, 100 years ago. How would a common cold be treated in 1915? And I will say in central Pennsylvania.
1: <laughs>
0: Go ahead, Donna. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, uh, there are a couple of ways that that would be treated. Uh, first, it would depend on where you went for treatment. If you went to your local pharmacist, uh, the chances are that you would be treated with a special cure that he made up himself um, the pharmacists generally had um, recipes that's what they called them uh, for different cures oftentimes they would make uh, several of them uh, like 20 or 30 of them and then number them you go into the pharmacy and uh, say give them your symptoms and you go, okay well you need number 14 and that's what they would sell you Uh, If you went to or contacted your doctor and your doctor would in 1915 would have come out to your home more than likely and um, treated you um, with either a type of patent medicine. That was, again, probably a a cure that he came up with himself that was probably um, heavily uh, based uh, in alcohol um, in rural Lancaster County. Uh, you possibly would have been um, subjected to bloodletting. Uh, so,
0: they okay, bloodletting. What is bloodletting? Bloodletting
1: I mean. is when they would actually cut into a vein. The doctor would cut into a vein using either a lancet, which is a small uh, spring-loaded uh, device that would has a single blade and cuts into the skin, and then they remove a certain amount of blood, and depending on the severity of your illness would depend on how much blood they removed, and they would measure that, and it would be so many ounces that they would remove. What was the idea behind that? They felt that um, any illness was caused by um, impurities in the blood. So you would have to remove bad blood, and then you would, you know, your body would recreate, the new blood would theoretically be uh, germ-free. Uh, So if they would use either the lancet, there also was a device called a fleam, which kind of looked like a pocket knife, had usually three or four blades on it, different sized blades. Uh, doctors often treated animals as well. So there was also a large blade on there so that if the doctor was at your house and, you know, the cow was also sick, he could go out and bloodlet the cow. Oh, great. Yeah. And then there was a device called a scarifier, which is also spring-loaded and has anywhere from 9 to 16 blades. And, uh, uh, And they would cut 16 slices into your skin. And uh, do the bloodletting that way.
0: Now, I hope, I know we're not using the same blade, but I'm hoping that uh, they washed and cleaned, cleansed uh, those blades. In
1: 1915, they would have rinsed them off. Okay. Uh, prior to that, they would not have even done that because boiling or cleaning would have damaged the, the blades. You know, they rust, that kind of thing. So they would just kind of wipe them off and use them again. They're... Wipe it off, and it's ready for the next patient.
0: Doctor Zavarnos, uh, you mentioned to me that because uh, we had talked a, a little bit about this before the show, that uh, a, a patient's state of mind made a big difference in how they were treated too. Humor, isn't that what you yes, called it? Yes. We we back
2: in up up until the late nineteenth century, we believed still in the humoral theory that goes way back to Hippocrates, and uh, and promoted especially by a doctor by the name of Galen in the second century and uh so we continued to believe in the humoral theory, and so uh if you had a bad humor, you got to get it out of you
0: and how did you do that
2: well we we did use uh the 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 uh, the cupping methods and the bleeding methods, the bleeding methods, as already mentioned by Donna, but the uh, cupping also was a kind of bleeding which was a a uh, the, you would put uh, a cup, uh, a glass cup, on a, on the skin, usually on the back, sometimes on the arm. It would be heated, and that uh, would cause a suction effect on the skin,
0: and you would draw out the bad humors. I don't think that would put someone in a good mood. Donnie, when you said that the use of alcohol, I would think that would put them in a better mood. (laughs) And many times they did. In fact, you mentioned to me that uh, many doctors use cocaine, quinine, a a lot of things that uh, are taboo today for treatment. Yeah, they were integrated
2: into these concoctions.
0: That, that, that was part of it. Yeah. yeah. Now, what I, the reason I asked that question, I just wanted to show that uh, you know, things have changed a great deal. That's a, in just an example of talking for a few minutes about the common cold is how different things are. Dr. Zvanos, let's talk about the, the Edward Hand uh, Medical Heritage Foundation and also the museum. Uh, first of all, who was Edward Hand? I'm glad you asked. <laughs>
2: uh, Edward Hand was an Irishman. He was a physician. He was born in Ireland in 1744. Uh, he acquired his medical education in Ireland, came to America as a surgeon's mate with the 18th Royal Irish Regiment of Foot in 1767 and was stationed in Fort Pitt during the, uh, for a, a good period of time. I, in fact, George Washington got to know him when George was before he... Uh, when he was working with the British, and uh, managed to visit uh, uh, Pittsburgh when when uh, Edward Hand was there, and they became acquaintances. Um, along the way, uh, Edward Hand uh, was re-stationed in Philadelphia and got caught up in the revolutionary mo- movement of uh, of the Americans. So in 1774, he sold his commission, established a medical practice in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and married a well-to-do lady by the name of Catherine Ewing. And uh, when the war started heating up uh, against the British, uh, General Washington got in touch with him, and he uh, commissioned him as a lieutenant colonel uh, of the 1st Pennsylvania Regiment. And he was again stationed in the Fort Pitt area And he moved up the ranks very, very quickly, became a brigadier general, uh, and within a couple of years after being commissioned a colonel, uh, he became uh, the adjutant, George Washington's adjutant general, or chief of staff. And then after the war, uh, uh, he came back to Lancaster, practiced medicine. Uh,
0: He uh, built a beautiful home. which their visitors can go to uh, Edward Hand's home in in Lancaster. Yeah, and that's now called Rockford Rockford, Rockford. Yeah, Rockford yep. Plantation. The Rockford Plantation, right. mm-hmm. and
2: uh, and he had uh, four or five children, and he, unfortunately, I have to tell you, uh, there is he,
0: some irony here. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah he died in eighteen o two, but I have to tell you. What my theory is. Okay. You have, uh, but, now see, the reason, I, I guess, because we were talking about bloodletting. Go yeah, ahead. So Go ahead. Uh, one of the things you did uh, besides getting the humors out with bloodletting, we also use purgatives uh, to get rid of poisons in your system. Well, I suspect that, that uh, General Hand, uh, Dr. Hand at that time when he got ill, uh, he thought maybe he had, he ate something that upset his stomach because he had vomiting and diarrhea he was sick only for a few hours took this purgative i suspect i can't prove this but i suspect he took calomel which is mercurial chloride and it's mercury. not on,
0: mercury yeah mm-hmm.
2: and not only does it uh, uh, not only does it serve as a laxative but it also serves as a diuretic so i suspect he got really really dehydrated and I think that's
0: how he died. But even then, they, they didn't... Back in those days, they didn't realize that mercury was a bad thing. No. And that no. even a doctor would not realize he was being becoming dehydrated? Well, I suspect that he didn't.
2: Or when, uh, uh, when he re- realized what was happening, it was just too late. Because he died the same day. He died within, the, within less than 24 hours after getting sick. Now, when you say you suspect...
0: What does well, was her, they, the biography the, give an official
2: cause of yeah, death? Yeah, he was diagnosed with something called uh, cholera morbus, uh, and a lot of people uh, would drop the the second word, morbus, and thought he died of cholera. Well, cholera didn't exist in Lancaster County in 1802. Uh, we didn't get our first case of cholera in Lancaster until the 1830s. Uh, but at any rate, uh, uh, that's... The, the way he died, it's like the way people die when they get cholera because it's one of these rapid, very rapid deaths that occur as a result of uh, being uh, infected with this particular organism.
0: Now, again, there's some irony here when you mention George Washington because bloodletting may have killed George Washington. Yes. That they uh, probably took too much blood. He had a throat infection.
1: He um had gone out riding one morning and came back, and the weather turned. He got wet, caught a chill, came back, um, and they really thought that, you know, back then that, you know, just getting wet from the weather um, will cause you to get sick. And, uh, he Which people was, still believe
0: today. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. Yes, well, um, yes.
1: Yeah. And he um, he was a very firm believer in bloodletting. So he requested of his doctors to perform bloodletting. So, and several times they over a twenty four hour period, um I believe they removed i think it was around forty eight ounces of blood in a twenty four hour period, so rather than the probably flu or maybe strep throat or whatever that he may have actually gotten um it it's likely that his actual cause of death was loss of blood. Mm.
0: So. Well, as you see, we have a lot to talk about here today. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're discussing medical history today with Dr. Nikitas Zervanos, president of the Edward Hand Medical Heritage Foundation. There's a museum in Lancaster. And Donna Martins, curator curator of uh, the medical museum. We welcome your question and comments. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, the phone number is 1-800-729-7532. Washington didn't have a Facebook page would have known that, uh, or maybe got some comments that bloodletting wasn't the way to go. Uh, before we talk about the museum and how this all came about, we have an email here from Emmanuel and Carlisle. says, my great-grandmother suffered with a nervous condition and in her diary she spoke of her husband taking her for her regular hysteria treatment and how much better she felt after them. After research, I found out what these treatments were and had to laugh at the status of women's medicine long ago and how far we've come since then. Hysteria treatments. What were hysteria treatments?
1: Well, depending on the time frame there, I don't know when the great-grandmother went. Probably, if it's a
0: great-grandmother, my guess is maybe 100, 120 years ago.
1: Okay. Um, There were uh, patent medicines that could have been used to treat that. And also, like I said before, were probably loaded with alcohol. But The late 19th century and early 20th century saw a great increase with the development of electricity and battery power, um, a great increase in uh, machines that were used to treat women's nervous disorders. Now we call it quack medicine. Um, and I actually just got finished uh, uh, putting together an exhibit at our museum space uh, on quack medicine. And we have one in particular that was exactly, it's called uh, uh, the Electromagnetic Treatment for Women's Nervous Disorders. And it's, uh, it, you hand crank it, and there's two handles on it that the the woman would hold, and it it's shock therapy. And that's what they would do. Any woman and women's nervous disorders were anything from, um, you know, what we call now PMS uh, or even, you know, even just being emotional or or anything like that. And they considered that a women's nervous disorder. And didn't get nervous? Oh, no, not at all. But these and it was usually but the machines were usually um, some sort of shock therapy. And uh, with the development of electricity, they became very popular in the treatment of women. And we wonder
0: why there's a stigma or a stereotype (laughs) when there's something like that. Exactly. Uh, Yeah. But Dr. Zavanos, what that uh, also goes to show is that uh, I was thinking about this earlier when uh, Donna was describing the pharmacist, and the doctors Because There seemed to be like no organization like there was a lot of independent thought going on. Have you found that in uh, you know in in the museum and in your research? yeah, as a matter of fact a lot of uh,
2: physicians up until the nineteen hundreds uh, were still practicing medicine, even without a formal medical education, because we we didn't really start medical schools in the United States until the 1760s. Actually, the first one was in Philadelphia. In Philadelphia, the nearest Pennsylvania, where I went to medical school. Oh. And, uh, of course, uh, with time, uh, most physicians, of course, did get a medical education, but the medical education in America was uh, very, very different than it is today. In the 19th century, give you an idea, uh, we had, at one time or another, over 400 medical schools. Uh, there was a, uh, a very great concern about many, many medical educators in the late 19th century, early 20th century, to change that, including a, a, a well-known educator by the name, Abraham Flexner, who uh, was... Uh, Working with the AMA, and they he, he went about investigating all the medical schools that were in existence to try to see uh, if they if we can make some changes. And in fact, those changes did come about. So that by the time he published his report in 1910 about exposing how serious our medical education system was, uh, we were we were left with less than a hundred medical schools by 1920.
1: Well, go
0: ahead, Don. What were you going
1: to say? What was and what was interesting about medical schools then as well is, students of medicine, it was just classroom work. There wasn't like a residency program like there is now, where the doctors learn how to treat patients. Their uh, treating patients came later. So if you had a medical school degree, it was really just what you learned out of medical books. It was the doctors that actually treated patients, and most of that was done during wartime, uh, during the Civil War. We learned that, a lot during the Civil War. That's where they learned yeah. because of the not only um, the, the traumatic injuries, uh, but even diseases, because of the unsanitary conditions. Um, there was a lot of disease in bat- battlefields and things like that. So that was where doctors received their real training, and that's why there were so many that never actually went to medical school but were still considered doctors because they worked on those battlefields and and, and learned as an apprentice yeah, and still became doctors.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, that's the important point. They, right. they, they did also work with physicians in their offices as apprentices. Mm-hmm. Some of them did so before they went through this medical education, uh, and some of them uh, did this. After they went through the, their medical education, the medical education might consist of just a series of lectures that they would go to for over a period of about six months. Uh, then they would repeat the same year, the second year, and then they they would get some kind of a certificate indicating they completed the, those courses. If they 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 had to pay the fees for those lectures, and then uh, they would uh, sometimes take an examination. And, and of course, with uh, the passing of those exams, you would then get the certificate. And then, But a lot of states didn't even have licensure uh, requirements until much
0: later. Uh, yeah, from and, what I understand, like the 1930s. Until, you know, it was,
2: until it was universal, yeah.
0: When you think about it, just learning out of a book and not really treating patients, right. when did residency programs
2: come well, along? Well, that's a good question because they start having – residencies perhaps in the late 19th century. However, formally, uh, we didn't have uh, certified specialists until the first one being in 1917 uh, when ophthalmology was established as a, as a bona fide specialty. Um, by, by the year 1940, we had 20 primary specialties in America, primary uh today believe it or not with all the subspecialties we have i don't know the exact number but i believe it's more than 140 specialties and subspecialties that we now have in america
0: mm-hmm. i also understand that there was a time that family physicians or you know like the neighborhood doctor was kind of looked down upon by the specialist correct
2: oh yes i mean i'm, it- I'm well aware of that because as you may or may not know uh, I was the founder of our family practice residency program here in Lancaster in 1969 when the specialty was first established as a formal specialty. And uh, and by the way, uh, uh, that's, I think, in fact, uh, uh, well, we were among uh, those primary specialties. I think we were the 20th 20, 20, the 21st, I forget. Exactly. But nonetheless, uh, it became a formal specialty. But up until then, we were discouraged as medical students to going into the field of general practice because you were considered uh, not well recognized in the medical field. Uh, But after we created the specialty of family medicine, and that was one of the reasons, in fact, why we did, to sort of be on par with all the other specialties, it's changed. And today, uh, at least 10 percent uh, or close to 10% of all American medical school graduates go into the specialty of family medicine. And from what I
0: understand, we still need more. We need a lot Especially more. Especially with Absolutely. our insurance situation exactly. and everything else today. Yeah. Art sends an email asking, when did the use of leeches to treat medical conditions yeah. come into practice, and how was their use first discovered? This is one of those things. I knew we would get this question because <laughs> it is one of those things people have heard about over the years and say, oh,
1: it's gross. But, uh, sure. Um, it goes back to the Middle Ages. I mean, from the first it, it it bloodletting had its origins from that, because the leeches essentially do the same thing. Uh, they remove blood. So um so that actually predates bloodletting, which and bloodletting itself goes back to with the flames and, and knives and things goes back to the Middle Ages as well. So it's it actually is as old as bloodletting. What was the
0: idea behind it?
1: Um, again, well, to remove infection, remove the bad blood, um, and there are um, some there. It, there are some use of it even. I thought well there were. In, Yeah, even presently. I yeah. mean, there's when you've um, to reduce inflammation. You know, the the leeches will get that extra blood out, and in a slow manner, so that it it doesn't cause uh, shock to the system.
0: Where did they get these leeches?
1: In the rivers, and, you know, they don't—it's not like they breed them. They just collect—at least originally, they would have just collected them where leeches live. So it's
0: someone's job to go out and collect leeches. Someone's job to
1: go out and collect leeches, yeah. And
0: hold on to them. And and like you said about—because I've still heard that there are some facilities that— continue to have leeches and and use them. I imagine around the world, that probably is is still a practice, a medical practice. So yeah. Maybe not so much here in the United States.
1: Exactly. And in areas where they practice a more um, I guess, is it homeopathic? Is that the type of... I don't know if they, uh, that, homeopaths not, uh, not homeopaths have leeches, but leeches. more more um, uh, uh, Naturalist, yeah, naturalist. You know? okay, there yeah. you go. That naturalist. was
0: a better word for it, yeah. Right, doctors, Where... I'm sorry, Doctor uh You know, when Donna said earlier about uh, the, the physician just, you know, wiping off or rinsing off uh, his his instruments, uh, and I also think about leeches. Infection was one of the things that just was not understood. I mean, absolutely. I mean, they just—we probably more people died of infection than anything else, just because they actually were killed by by their treatment.
2: Well, during the Civil War, yeah. especially, uh, President Lincoln was so concerned about the medical profession because he he discovered that there was a higher likelihood that you would die if you were in the hands of a of a physician because of this infection problem. Uh, and it was the germ theory just didn't catch on for a while yet uh,
0: when did it catch on I mean when do we find well it was realized. after
2: the Civil War when that really picked up Donna maybe right. you can comment about that too
1: yeah it was the late 19th century um, and and that was when uh, the use of microscopes really became um, important and so that they once you could actually show doctors that the germs were real and were there. They became a little more um, receptive to that whole idea. But there was also, and especially at that time frame, the mid-19th century, the instruments, for example, scalpels and um, you know, and during the Civil War, it was a lot of amputations and things. Um, the way their instruments were made, the handles of the knives and, and things were ivory or ebony. If even if they knew and accepted that theory of of uh, of germs, if you boiled the knives and scalpels, it would ruin the handles, and they were very expensive. So they would still resist that that uh, the the sterilization process because they didn't want to ruin their equipment. Mm-hmm. So Ebony
0: and Ivory, I think somebody recorded a song. Yes, oh, I think yeah. so. <laughs> <laughs> we have a phone call here from Vince in Lebanon. Vince, you're on the air. Uh, good, morning, good morning, everyone. Hi, morning. Uh, and I have a question, and I'm not sure what time period this was from, but the use of uh, snuffing uh, arsenic, I think especially for women, was popular. And, and what effect that had, and also what other different types of uh, stuff were used
1: at that time? Thank you very much for your call. Donna? Arsenic started being used, from from what I have found, um Arsenic was re, was used to replace mercury uh, in some treatments, um, so that it was probably in the late 19th century, very early 20th century that that transition happened with arsenic replacing mercury. And mercury they used to treat almost anything. They uh, like we said it was a it was a cathartic, so they used it to for that purging. Uh, they used it if you had um, – they, they had it in, like, creams. They would rub it all over your body, and they thought that would – it would make you sweat, and then they thought that would make uh, – would get rid of those bad humors. Um, and then they realized that that mercury was very toxic. So their next option was arsenic, I guess. And again, not really, I guess, realizing how toxic arsenic is. So mm-hmm. that replaced it in – Late nineteenth century, uh,
0: Doctor Savanos. Well, either one of you can mm-hmm. answer this, but uh, I understand that in your collection of over eleven thousand, that uh, doctors' poisons, and I put that in uh, in uh, quote marks, doctors' poisons. That that's part of uh, the the collection. Now, what were doctors' poisons? I mean, today. We would look at arsenic as a poison, mercury Mm -hmm. as a poison, if you will, or at least something toxic. But what were some of the poisons that uh, – what were referred to as poisons in in the collection?
2: I, I have to answer this by giving you the origin of the word for pharmaceuticals or pharmacology. The word in Greek for poison is pharmaki. So pharmacology is the study of poisons. Uh So we uh, physicians, uh, when we go through medical school and learn all about all these pharmaceuticals, we really are learning how to use poisons as as therapy. Uh, And as I tell my residents and students, uh, every time we prescribe any one of these drugs or pharmaceuticals, we always have to keep in mind the side effects. And every drug that does some good, has potential to do harm. So we have to respect every one of these medications that we use to treat our patients for whatever ailment it might be.
0: Yeah, today, uh, and even aspirin, by the way, uh, that everyone thinks thinks that, uh, okay, this is just something that uh, we we took growing up to take care of a headache or whatever, but uh, there's potential for side effects there. But when people finally realize it, today is when they see the TV commercials oh, yeah. about uh, a medication that is being advertised and they hear the side effects, which by law they must do. Yes. And, uh, you know, when you hear the side effects, you're like, okay, I don't know whether I want to take that or not. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, we have a call here from Roy in Seelands Grove. Roy, you're on the air. Um, hey, Um. I, I just uh, thought that, that you shouldn't leave the impression that uh, – people didn't actually know that mercury was poisonous anybody who approached a mercury mine would would notice right away that they're they're walking into a uh, like one of the circles of hell a, a dead area plants are dead animals are dead if you uh you if you put people to the job of mining mercury why they die pretty quick so you need you, you need it's it's one of those mining situations where ah, our best miners are slaves because they're all expendable, but and then and then I hear you you are talking about uh,
2: uh,
0: uh, poisons and yeah. but 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 people were not at all. Um, it's not like a new idea that mercury was poisonous. Mm-hmm. Okay, Roy. Thank you very much for your call. I hope we didn't leave that impression. But uh, he's right that uh, sure. they knew that mercury was not this cure all and was not a good thing. And that's why eventually they they stopped using it.
1: Sure, it did, They they did eventually replace it with with other chemicals, and uh, uh, even uh, we have a, uh, a doctor's uh, chest precursor to a doctor's bag. This is a wooden chest. And there is a compartment in the back, and that might be what you were referencing with the poisons. Um, There was a compartment in the back of this chest that was used to carry the poisons. And I guess that's where they put the things that they felt were most toxic and keep it separate from the other um, medicines or chemicals that they used that were um, at least at the time, viewed less poisonous.
0: We have an email here asking, uh, can you talk about the use of water, healing mountain springs to treat various health conditions? We had many here in Pennsylvania, Ephrata Mountain Springs, Bedford Springs, for example. We know that Franklin Roosevelt uh, would go to Warm Springs, Georgia, because he felt that, that that helped him with his medical conditions. But do you know anything about the the, the, the water treatment here in Pennsylvania or elsewhere?
1: Uh, not really. I I know that they, I know of them. But as far as our museum is concerned, we don't. You don't have, have, have any a warm springs a museum. No, we don't. No, have we a, don't. Oh, I think you could come up with it. But right? you
2: know, uh, there are waters that contain uh, minerals, like sulfur, for example. And uh, for for a while, they, they uh, there has been a, a belief that uh, these sulfur-containing uh, uh, the, these waters that contain a certain amount of sulfur, are beneficial to your health. I, I know there is a, uh, a place on the island, of Kos where my family comes from in Greece. Uh, they swear by the waters that they have healing properties, especially for conditions like osteoarthritis
0: or, or inflammatory joint disease and so forth. So there could be something to it. Yes. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We are talking about the history of medicine. We're going to talk a little more about the Edward Han Medical Heritage Museum in Lancaster. Our guest is Dr. Nikita Zervanos, who is president of the Heritage Foundation, and Donna Mann, curator of the Edward Han Medical Heritage Museum in Lancaster. Give us a call. You have a question or a comment, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question on WITF Facebook page. Again, the phone number is one eight hundred seven two nine seven five three two. 729 7532 Let's talk about uh, the museum a little bit and the collection that you have. Uh, Dr. Savanos. this started in 1982. Correct. It's been around now for over over 30 years. But uh, talk about how you acquired some of the items in uh, the collection and what are some of the, the items there that maybe are a little bit unusual. Well, first of all, I can tell you that... Uh,
2: how it started, and Donna can comment about some of these unusual items that we have. But uh, when people like Dr. Paul Ripple, who's still on our board, uh, came up with the idea that we ought to create this museum, uh, uh, it was with the idea of... of, uh, He noted that some of our doctors were dying off, and they had uh, all kinds of... Uh, fascinating old equipment and so forth, and what are we going to do with this? We can't just let this uh, get wasted. We should be preserving some of these things, and that's when it started. And we started collecting these items at the Medical Society in Lancaster. After a while, we ran out of space, and uh, and we uh, finally uh, were able to get some warehouse space from uh, the General Hospital in Lancaster. And uh, uh about five years ago, we were given some uh, very uh, desirable space over at the Brown Industrial Park. And that that led us to having enough space and two rooms, in fact, that made it possible for us to create our own museum. So we have a warehouse plus our museum that are contiguous. And uh, uh, it's uh, we have a lot of remarkable pieces of old... Artifacts and that, and Donna can comment further about that.
0: Before she does that, I want to mention that even though museum is the museum is there uh, right now, I mean it's probably it's not that well known. Correct. You don't advertise or anything like that for the most part. That people to see the to come to the museum have to make appointments. Are there plans that someday that there would be a museum where people could just walk right in?
2: We have a vision that that will happen. Uh, and uh, by the way, let's emphasize one more thing, and I want to ask Donna to comment further. And that is our virtual museum.
0: Yes, uh, which is excellent, and I have a, a link on our website, WITF.org, to the virtual
2: museum. Wonderful. to Talk about that. I'm glad. So, Donna, go ahead.
1: Well, our virtual museum, um, we've we've split the collection up into um, categories, medical specialties, and we've re-photographed them, uh, re researched the um each artifact and uh, and put them on the website uh included in that uh some of the um, items are also there in uh 3D um so which gives you a 360 degree view of the of the item that you can manipulate with your mouse and look at and stuff so um it makes the collection accessible to uh to anyone anytime so it's really it's been a great uh, great addition to our collection. Yeah, so. and as I
0: said, on our website, org, if you uh, click, if it's not on the, fr- the front page, click on Smart Talk and uh, find the article that describes today's program. And there is a link there to uh, well, it's to your website, mm-hmm. which you can very easily then find the, the, the virtual museum. And, uh, yeah, it's, I, I yeah. had to borrow a couple of your photographs for our website <laughs> for, uh, <laughs> before that. But uh, uh, now, what are some of the Before we go back to the phone, because I see that we are getting some phone calls now. Sure. Do be patient. Um, if uh someone w- would go through the museum, what are some of the items, some of the more unusual items they could find?
1: In the virtual museum or in the the museum itself? both okay, the I think the showpiece of the our, of our exhibit space is our pharmacy. Um, we have a pharmacy it, it's like a shelving unit that did come out of a pharmacy uh, in eighteen fifty one in New York City. so uh, and we've been able to completely stock it with period um, medicines. Um, and the, the really, I think, unique thing about our pharmacy collection is the medicine bottles all contain the original contents. A lot of times... A lot of stuff there's
0: nothing fake there. No. A lot yeah. of
1: times, they'll, you know, the bottles will be cleaned out or, you know, refilled with flour or sugar or whatever, Tic Tacs, M&Ms, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but these are all, the, the bottles are still sealed and they still have the original contents. So and they've um we've been able to um organize it so that we have medicines that date from the very early eighteen hundreds through nineteen hundred so it's it gives you a broad overview of of how um medicine started in a more herbal based uh and then goes through the more the and Words more chemical based at the end of the century.
0: Have you ever been tempted to use any of those? (laughs) (laughs) I'm joking, by the way. There are some
1: interesting uh, things there. Those things weren't
0: regulated (laughs) in those days. Let's go to Gary and Carlisle. Gary, you're on the air. Thank you uh, very much. Enjoying your program today. Thank you. I read somewhere uh, a long time ago about the medical use of maggots in treating wounds on battlefields early on, and I'm wondering if your guest could comment on that. All right. Thank you very much for your call. I hate to even picture it, but...
1: <laughs> um, only of what I've read about that, that it is a treatment for um, to the maggots will eat the diseased or dead uh, skin. flesh, skin. Yeah you know it 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 helps prevent gangrene especially that's something that i think it was probably fairly common during the civil war mm-hmm. battlefield type environment where um they didn't have a lot of resources so they would use maggots so that they would eat that the get rid of the dead stuff before they bandaged it up and, and again
0: maybe i'm not picturing this correctly but i would think that uh you know when you think about the diet that maggots have uh that there would be the possibility of uh, bringing some infection to uh, the body then as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not something you'd want on your body. Go ahead, Doctor. And
2: by the way, on our website, besides the virtual museum, you'll see many publications that tell the story about the history of medicine in Lancaster County and the region. Uh, Not only these are written by uh, medical specialists, Uh, we have uh, a summary chapter in there from the famous book from Ellis and Evans, on the history of lancaster county there 's a one hundred plus page section on the history of medicine, which is wonderful. We have uh, papers on pulmonary medicine, uh, ophthalmology, uh, we have uh, a story on dermatology, gastroenterology urology, and these tell the story of how medicine was developed in Lancaster County and written by our specialists from. The respective specialists from uh, in those fields
0: from our community today, today's yes. community. Okay. Yes, yes. You know, I want to go back to something that you talked about the very first. Question that I'm asking you, and I was curious when you said about uh, pharmacists had their own recipes. Yes, what kind of training did pharmacists, pharmacists have? And the my next question is would physicians like today, uh, a physician writes a prescription. The pharmacist fills it. Did that happen, or when did that start?
1: The first pharmacy uh, college was in Philadelphia in 1821. Uh, prior to that, it was just um, pharmacists coming up with their own recipes. And you know, um, and that even continued after uh, the the college of pharmacy started. Um, so, doctors did write. Prescriptions to a pharmacist. Many times they carried medicines with them when they, you know, in their bags when they visited the home, um, but they did write prescriptions, and uh, and they even came up with their own sort of recipes, which they would outline in a prescription and give to the to the pharmacist. Uh, the earliest book I have that is a pharmacist record is uh, eighteen fourteen. And that is, the, the, so the pharmacists did keep a record of all of the prescriptions filled by, that they filled, the, the prescriptions they received by doctors. So there was a record kept of that. You know, I'm
0: um, going to ask a question. Go ahead, Doctor, But I was so
2: just going to say the, the earliest apothecaries came from England primarily. So we did have well trained, educated pharmacists that populated our community. But as Donna says, a lot of them. Uh, also were physicians who created their own uh, pr- uh, prescriptions, if you will, or uh, recipes, as Donna pointed out.
0: Isn't it true, now we mentioned how our physicians, we learned so much from treatments in the Civil War, but isn't it true before that that the good doctors, what we knew where the most of the medical knowledge was, was in England or Germany, and that here in the United States, we didn't have a whole lot unless we would have a British or a German physician come to this country. Is right. that
2: true? That is correct. Mm-hmm. And these are the ones that then would train young people from America in their offices as apprentices. And that's what how most of the physicians, if you will, evolved before our, our formal medical education started in the 1760s in America.
0: Hmm. Uh, You know, I guess. uh, Would would a person who was uh, an apprentice when could they start calling themselves doctor? A lot of them did. They called themselves right off the bat. They called themselves doctor. Yeah,
2: yeah, they were recognized by the community as as as
0: physicians. Hmm. And at at that time, uh, many Americans, uh, colonists, and even into the eighteen hundreds, did not have a lot of money to pay. So a doctor would get uh, it would be a fee for service or maybe a, I don't know a cow or or something like that, that, sure. that they bartered yes. kind of the the services correct that's correct can yeah. you imagine doing that today I mean what would you want well, Dr. I,
2: I still I still get uh, bags of cookies and uh, <laughs> for my patients <laughs> for my do services. they get special treatment you bet <laughs> they do
1: <laughs> we we do have some. Uh, the the doctors would carry with them a little book where they would put who they you know who they treated that day and what they received and sometimes they received money and sometimes they received eggs or so we do have they they kept a record of that the doctors yeah.
0: day, so now you said donna that mm-hmm. uh, most of the time the physician would travel to the home uh, of, of 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 the family mm-hmm. uh when did they start opening offices
1: uh it was well in, – in in Lancaster City, it would have been earlier because, you know, just being in, city. This, right, in this – Right, in the city. Yeah. It was a big city for the time, and, you know, people could travel within the city easily to the doctor's office. But in the rural areas, it was well into the 20th century that they continued to, to to primarily have house calls.
0: So when we uh, would refer to someone as the country doctor, that's the person we were talking about who mm-hmm. would – Ride a horse, maybe even into the 20th century. Oh, yeah, probably into
1: off. the 40s, yeah. Before, yeah. Then and, and they can, may not have even had an office. They uh, just traveled to the home.
2: Uh, and can you imagine if you had to make a house call in those days on a horse and buggy, uh, and you had to travel even five miles on a horse and buggy, and sometimes the weather wasn't so good and the roads were not good? Uh, you know, that could be a three or four hour event. So it's not too many patients you could see in the course of a day if you had to make a lot of house calls.
0: I'm putting you on the spot, uh, but you've been around, Doctor Zivano, so yes. I know that part of the, one of the uh, art, one of the items is your microscope from medical school yeah. in the 1950s. Uh, how many ha- house calls have you done?
2: Well, believe it or not, in my first 10 years in Lancaster, I did a, quite a few. Uh, it was sort of expected. But as time went on and we developed these emergency room physician services, uh, somebody has chest pain. It's not a good idea to make a house call cool and see a patient in their home. You better get him to the hospital as soon as possible. Mm.
0: So again, something else we learned along the way that uh, you can't wait for weather like we've had it, we had last week. I right. like can't imagine getting through the snow and getting through that storm yeah. out to a uh, to a house when someone was having chest pains or uh, you know something else with where there was an emergency. Okay, let's go uh, to David and Duncan. And David, you're on the air. Yeah, I have a comment. I heard no mention of barbers on the show you know a lot of barbers were surgeons and functioned as doctors in fact the striped pole i think was a bloody rag it's mm-hmm. kind of a, a visual cue uh, but i never heard anything about that in fact okay. a lot of barbers i believe were in the civil war and functioned as surgeons as well well you and can see left, the, you can see the, so the correlation doctors cutting hair Cutting to your chest. Hey, David, you're right. Thank you very much for your call. He's absolutely right. Right. I mean, I have seen, like, some of the advertisements, Mm -hmm. and maybe you even have in the museum of, uh, you know, barbers and surgeons that together, that was after their name.
1: Right. And they were also dentists, and dentists barbers too. and dentists. Yes, so, they often pulled teeth. It's a one stop.
0: It is. You get your hair cut, get a tooth <laughs> pulled, and, you know, maybe you have a cold that you need treated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but
1: seriously, I
0: mean, that was part of it.
1: Sure. And especially with, it, especially with dentistry, because doctors did not view dentistry as a real medical practice. So uh, that's why many times it was barbers that were also dentists uh, because doctors didn't feel that, they felt that dentistry was beneath them. They didn't view dentistry as a field of medicine. Okay, so wait.
0: They looked at, de- doctors looked at dentistry as not being a real medical procedure.
1: Right, or medical specialty or... So
0: cutting hair and working on teeth.
1: Pulling teeth, yeah. Wow. Doctors are, de- are, excuse me, uh Barbers also did a lot of bloodletting as well. Uh,
0: we had a, a call here from uh, Linda in Hummelstown who asked, uh, Did doctors travel west along with the Western movement? We know that Lancaster County, yeah. for example, you know, everyone knows the story of the Conestoga wagon and. In the 1700s, early 1800s, when the westward movement started, I mean, where Harrisburg was the great frontier, that uh, did doctors follow along? Or because it was so wild, did it take them a, long, a while to, uh, to migrate along with the, the western frontier? They, they did. They definitely moved along with the other settlers. But I, I, my guess is it probably took them a little bit longer because the frontier was so wild.
2: Oh, yeah. But it, it was not uncommon to have doctors. You know, in Lancaster County, uh, it was uh, uh, the general practitioner. Uh, back in the earlier part of the 20th century, there were, there were physicians all over the county. By the time I graduated from medical school, because of specialization, they were almost all gone. And uh, that's one another reason why we needed to create a new specialty to try to change this uh around Hmm. and i'm by the way i'm very proud to tell you uh, that the lancaster county is well populated with family physicians many of them are graduates of our program
0: we only have about a minute or so left actually about 30 seconds want to thank you both for being with us today if someone would like to come to the museum first of all they can go to the website and Mm -hmm. look at the virtual museum but if they'd like to visit the museum in person how could they do that
1: uh, just call or email
0: and what is the call and
1: the uh, phone well, number they, well actually email would be best okay, and that is curator at edwardhand dot org
0: well, thank you very much. Fascinating program, and uh, I know that we'll get requests for people who want to hear this again. So, uh, by the way, tonight at 7 o'clock if you, uh, have, if you want to listen to it again, don't hear okay. the whole program, you can do that. Uh, Dr. Nikitas Zervanos, President of the Edward Hand Medical Heritage Foundation, and Donna Mann, Curator of the Museum. Thank you very much for being with us today.
1: Thank you for thank having us. Thank you, you Scott.
0: It. A little more science tomorrow. Uh, an FM professor was uh, one who was involved in most extensive research on the Decline of bees in America. That's tomorrow's program.